well, uh, as you have probably already heard, uh, it was eight years ago this week that we had our first public gathering as a church. And so this Sunday, we are celebrating eight years of God's faithfulness to us as a church. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has really just been so faithful to us. We've seen so much of his grace in bringing people from death to life and changing lives. Uh, and we're, we're just so thankful for all that Jesus has done and is going to continue to do. And so a couple ways we're going to celebrate uh, our eighth birthday this morning. One, uh, we're going to have some baptisms. So after the sermon this morning, we're going to baptize and we're going to celebrate that Jesus is continuing here in our midst to bring people from death to life. And we're going to offer you the opportunity to be baptized if Jesus has saved you or if Jesus saves you uh, this very morning. We're going to celebrate that uh, and then also, we have a few of our local partnerships in the city here with us. So we have Operation Inasmuch and Habitat for Humanity. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the gathering towards the end. But I just want to take some time now to just thank them for being here. Uh, and so can we do that? Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. We're really excited about all the work that you're doing. And uh, you'll, you'll hear some more information about how you can get connected with them. Uh, well, if you've got your Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, we'll start in verse 16. We're going to get all the way through verse 29 uh, of chapter 19. If you're new with us, we've been walking straight through the book of Genesis, and we just have uh, a fantastic passage today to celebrate eight years uh, as a church when God rains flaming asphalt and sulfur down from the sky and destroys entire cities for being wicked sinners. Uh, happy birthday, Veritas. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, uh, now, I'll, I'll just be honest. This is not the passage that I would have chosen if, uh, you know, I was just kind of picking a one-off of what would we preach through today to celebrate eight years uh, of God's faithfulness to us as a church. But look, we really do believe here at Veritas that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. God spoke it out, and it's all profitable for us. We need all of it. I mean, even our name, Veritas, is Latin for truth because we believe that the truth of God's word is what we should submit ourselves to and listen to and give our lives over to. And so the way that plays out for us is we spend the vast majority of our time just going straight through books of the Bible, and we don't want to skip hard passages as if God didn't have something to say to us in them because he definitely does. And, and that's the case this morning. And so even though there's a ton of judgment in this passage uh, and, and hard things that we're going to have to talk through, there's also a ton of God's grace for us to celebrate here. And so I'm really excited to get to celebrate that with you. I will offer a disclaimer. Uh, if, if all you've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah is just a Sunday school lesson you were taught as a kid, uh, it's a little bit more graphic than maybe that you remember. And so if you've got your kids here, uh, Veritas Kids is still open. You can take them there. Uh, if you choose not to, the conversations you have to have at lunch today, those are, those are just on you. Uh, and so th there's the caveat. But what we're going to do, uh, we've got a lot of text to work through this morning. And so we're going to start in verse 16 of chapter 18. We'll read through the end of chapter 18. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. And then we'll pick back up in 19 and kind of walk through the story piece by piece as we go. And so let's look at this together. Genesis 18 verse 16, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, 
that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to them and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So three things that we're going to see this morning in the text together. First, the plea for sinners, then the judgment of sinners, and then finally the hope for sinners. The plea for sinners, the judgment of sinners, uh, and then finally the hope for sinners. So last week we saw these three men appear to Abraham, one of whom uh, was identified as the Lord, and reiterate his promise to Abraham and give it to Sarah that, that about this time next year they would be having a son. Uh, and so after this, two of the men who are later identified in this text as angels begin to make their way towards Sodom. And then in verses 17 through 19, we just get another beautiful picture of God's friendship with Abraham. Because friends tell each other things, they let each other in on things that are going on, and so God basically says here, he says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. I've chosen him to be a blessing to the nations, and for him and his children after him to follow me, and to know me, and to be friends with me, and so I'm not going to hide from him what I'm about to do. And, and so in verse 20, God begins to tell Abraham what he's about to do. He says, because the outcry against Sodom, the outcry of people who have been victimized by their injustice and wickedness is so great and their sin is so grave, I'm about to judge it. I'm about to destroy it. Now listen, when God is saying all of this, this is really good news. Because look, God knows everything. Like, he doesn't have to go down and see if these people really are wicked. He already knows that they are. But when he says he's going to go down and see for himself, he's saying this is going to be a just judgment. God never flies off the handle. God never loses his temper. God never does this in judgment. It's always going to be a just judgment. But in this, and in God telling Abraham this, he's also inviting Abraham to pray for Sodom, to intercede for them. 
I mean, if after church this morning I told you, hey, a, a bunch of us are going out to lunch uh, this afternoon, it's going to be a really great time, I'm not just kind of telling you a bare fact, right? Like implicit in that is me inviting you to come with us. Uh, I wouldn't tell you what we were doing if I didn't want to invite you, right? And because that'd be kind of cruel. And so for me to say, hey, a bunch of us are going out to lunch, it's going to be a really great time is to invite you to come with us. And that's a little bit of what God is doing here. And so Abraham takes God up on this offer to pray for Sodom and to intercede for them, and he begins to pray for them, and notice how he prays for them. He appeals to God's character. He says, are you indeed going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Surely, as the righteous judge, you would not do that. God, God aren't, you're too righteous for that, right? Won't you, as the judge of all the earth, do what is just, do what is right? Now, listen, in Abraham saying all of this, he's not doubting God's character or questioning God's character. He's appealing to God on the basis of his character. He's appealing to God's righteous and justice character here. He's not appealing to his mercy. Did you notice that? Because Abraham does not say, hey, God, I I know the men and women of Sodom are just horrifically wicked people, but God, would you please take it easy on them? Would you just please find it somewhere in your heart to, to show some mercy and take it easy on them? No, that's not what he says. He says, God, it would be unjust for you to do this, to sweep away the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. You see, what Abraham is doing here in this prayer is he's actually kind of exploring God's righteous character and seeing how it plays out in practice. Because once again, if you notice, Abraham did not say, God, if you can find 50 righteous people in the city, will you make sure that you get them out of the city before you destroy it and judge it? No, he said, God, if you find 50 righteous people in the city, would you not spare the entire place for their sake? You see, Abraham is trying to figure out how God's character and God's righteousness plays out. He's trying to determine, can the righteousness of the few be enough to cover the wickedness of the many? Is righteousness of more value to God than wickedness? And so he keeps working this number down. He keeps asking for more, almost like he's pulling like a little bit of a dumb and dumber, right? I mean, he pulls like a, hey, what about 50 people? What about 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? Okay, so you're telling me that there's a chance. Uh, And Abraham works it all the way down to 10 people. God said he would spare the entire city of Sodom if he could simply find 10 righteous people in it. Now, we're going to come back to this prayer at the end of our time together this morning, but unfortunately, what we see uh, right here in chapter 19 is that there aren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom for the city to be spared for their sake. And this leads to the next thing that we see in this passage, the judgment of sinners. Pick back up in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So these two angels come to the gate of Sodom, and they find Lot sitting at the gate at the entrance of Sodom. This is where respected members and leaders of a government in the city would sit, and and this is where Lot is sitting. 
Not just that, chapter 13 told us that he moved his tent near Sodom, kind of on the outskirts of Sodom, but now Lot has, has built a house. He's bought a house here in Sodom. He keeps folding his life deeper into this city and into its wickedness, and we're going to see what that leads to in just a little bit. But, but these angels come, and he says, hey, you're staying with me tonight. And they're like, no, I think we'll just stay out here in the town square. And, and Lot understands what happens to visitors who stay out in the town square at night. And so he presses them strongly, like, no, I don't think you understand. You're coming to my house tonight. You're not staying out here. And so he presses them and annoys them so strongly until they decide to come with him. And then look at what happens next in verse 4. It says, but before they lay down... The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, or what your translation might say, so that we can have sex with them. Well, this is great, right? Like, this is written to shock us, and, and it's meant to shock us. Like Moses highlights that all the people, all the men in the city of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man had all gathered together to come to Lot's house and try and participate in a homosexual gang rape of these visitors. Like this is deplorable. It's absolutely wicked. When Genesis 13 said that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, it was not lying. Every single man in the city of Sodom has come to Lot's house, is banging on the door saying, where are the men? Bring them out to us so that we can have our way with them. Moses is highlighting for us that the primary way we see the wickedness of Sodom playing out is in their total sexual perversion and immorality. Like everyone was in on this. Every single man in the city, young and old, to the last man was so sexually confused, so sexually immoral, so sexually perverted that they were eager and willing to come to Lot's house and try and pass these visitors around for sport. Now, listen, some people have read this text and they've said the primary sin of Sodom was actually not sexual immorality and, and perversion. Uh, it was a lack of hospitality. But I'll just be honest, uh, it seems to me like there's a little bit of a difference between, hey, we're not going to have continental breakfast for you in the morning, and checkout got moved to 6 a.m. instead of 11 a.m., and uh, hey, come outside so that we can have our way sexually with you. Like, that's a big difference, right? Now, to be fair, Ezekiel 16 says that the sin of Sodom was pride. It says that they oppressed the poor and didn't help the needy, and they were prideful, and God says they committed an abomination before me, I think referring back to what we see here in Genesis 19. And so it's not just one or the other. Uh, I think some, one person put it really helpfully in saying that we could say that Sodom was committing both social and sexual immorality. The social injustices that they were committing against people, the outcry against them from the people that they victimized and oppressed as they grinded the faces of the poor and needy were coming up to God, and God was about to act against this. But, but once again, what Moses chooses to highlight as the primary way we see the wickedness of the men of Sodom on display is in their total sexual perversion and immorality. And listen, maybe you would read this and say, well, this is just condemning rape and sexual violence. It isn't condemning homosexuality. Like, this is so much different than a monogamous, committed homosexual relationship is. 
The problem with that is that it's not actually what the Bible says. Both 2 Peter 2 and Jude verse 7, when they talk about this, highlight that they were, the men were engaged in sexual immorality, in unnatural desires. Jude 7 says all the surrounding cities that got judged likewise engaged in sexual immorality and unnatural desires. Jude says they pursued different or strange flesh. And some people will take that to say, uh, oh, Jude is just saying that they were trying to have sex with angels and you shouldn't do that. And listen, you shouldn't do that. But, but the problem with that interpretation is that nobody knows these guys are angels yet. And they don't say, hey, bring out the angels. They say, bring out the men. Man, I'm, I'm harping on all this and hitting on all of this and bringing it out because here's the reality I think we've got to wrestle with. I don't think it should come as a surprise to you that we live in a society that is just as sexually confused and immoral and perverted today as Sodom was back then. As of a few years ago, and I'm sure the statistic has not changed, we spend more in a year, the porn industry makes more in a year than the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, NBC, CBS, ABC, Google, Netflix, Amazon, and eBay combined. Combined, it makes more. Like, our um, national pastime as Americans is not baseball anymore, it's porn. Human trafficking, modern sex slavery, is still fueled in large part because of our insatiable desire for pornography as a society. If we stopped looking at porn, it would deal a death blow to much of the human trafficking industry. Cohabitation, living and sleeping together before marriage, if you even choose to get married, is, is steadily on the rise. The divorce rate remains high. So does adultery. Like all of these things, our culture has totally rejected God's good design for marriage and sexuality, that sex is meant to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for one lifetime. And we've said, no, we know better. We know how to find life. We know how to find freedom. And we've totally flipped the middle finger to God's good design. And beyond all of that, the reality is that our culture is discipling you and catechizing you to celebrate as normal behavior that is wicked and sinful before God. Everything in our culture is invested into getting you to believe that it is an unalterable fact of someone's identity to be gay and to act on that identity, and that if you don't affirm that, if you don't say that they should be able to act on that identity, uh, if you don't say that this is just love and, and the way that they're meant to love, if you deny that, like you're committing the greatest cultural sin you can commit. There's not a greater sin in our culture than to deny someone the right to love and be loved by who they want to be, uh, and that if you're not affirming of these things, you're just the worst sort of backwoods bigot and hick that there is. Like, we have a whole month, Pride Month, and billions of dollars of advertising and political lobbying being pumped into movies and TV shows and sports, all being invested into getting you to celebrate as normal and to think it's normal when an 11-year-old girl wants to transition into being a boy or when a man wants to get married to a man, all invested in getting you to celebrate as normal and righteous behavior that is wicked and sinful before God. And you can tell how successful the culture is in discipling us in this by how many of you just cringed inside when I said that homosexual behavior is wicked in a way that you would not cringe inside if I said that cheating on your spouse or committing sexual assault or murdering somebody is wicked. 
David Wells says that worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And our culture is working 24-7 to get you to believe that righteousness, God's good design for marriage and sexuality, it's working to make it look horrifically strange, absolutely out of touch, and completely unloving, completely backwards and, and wicked for you to think this and to live this way in the culture. And listen, I'm harping on this. I'm really not trying to be harsh about this, but I'm harping on this because this is the area where we're going to be tempted to compromise and play down the Bible's incredibly clear teaching on this issue to save face in culture, especially if you're in your 20s and 30s or younger. Listen, we all face the temptation to not want to make waves and not want to rock the boat and just fit in and be accepted, but here's the deal. Like, you're just not going to be cool if you follow Jesus in this culture. Like, if you want to follow Jesus, you just have to give that desire up. Because if you don't go with all that the sexual revolution would tell us to affirm and celebrate as good and righteous and normal, you're not going to be cool. You're not going to be accepted. You're not going to, be, to fit in. You're going to be looked at as a bigot. And, and listen, I'll be the first to tell you, the church's track record on this issue has by and large been deplorable. And for one, we haven't distinguished between the reality that in a fallen world, there are going to be people who experience same-sex attraction and desires, and that's not sinful compared to acting on those desires and engaging in homosexual behavior, which is sinful. We, we seem to have forgotten the clear teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, which says that God will judge those outside the church. So we're not supposed to judge those outside the church. We judge those inside the church. We worry about our own house. And so listen, we should not be surprised when lost people act like lost people. And we should not expect people who are not followers of Jesus to live like followers of Jesus when they're not yet followers of Jesus. And we should do everything we can. We should go out of our way to love them and show kindness to them and treat them as people made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, value, and respect because they are. And all of that, I'm not saying we stop doing any of that. We should do more of that. But in all of that, what I'm saying is that I'm incredibly convicted by this passage that we've got to tell the truth about these things. Because the reality is that the sexual perversion of the sodomites earns them the judgment of God. Their entire city got wiped off the map. I'm convicted that it would be sin on my part to walk through this passage and lie to you and say that if you're engaged in unrepentant sexual perversion and immorality, there's no judgment coming for you and there's nothing that you have to fear. I'm convicted it would be sin on our part as Christians to play down and compromise on this issue and say, yeah, homosexuality and sexual perversion is just the way that you choose to love, and God loves that. He celebrates that. He's for you in that when that's just not the truth. The truth is that if you are engaged in unrepentant sexual perversion, the judgment of God is coming for you. Look, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I've got to warn you about this because this is the reality. Judgment is coming for this. And but, but listen, if this entire time that we've been walking through this, you've been sitting there and thinking, yeah, that's right, that's right. Come on, tell them, tell them, let them know. Let him know how wicked and sinful this is. Let him know, man, I'm so glad he's finally preaching. I've been waiting for this forever. I've been waiting forever for him to actually preach against sin. If, if that's where you've been the last few minutes, 
you really shouldn't have done that because now it's your turn. Because uh, Lot, the believer in this story, the Christian, the follower of God, uh, he doesn't do much better than the men of Sodom. Pick back up in the text and look at what Lot does in verse 6. It says, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So when Second Peter, when Peter in Second Peter calls Lot righteous Lot, I'll just confess, I've had a really hard time figuring that one out. Like, if that was not inspired scripture, I really don't think that I would believe it. That the only thing that Lot has going for him is that he is a believer. I mean, because Lot's just worlds better than the men of Sodom, right? He's just such a class act in all of this, isn't he? Hey, that's a real wicked thing to do, guys. Please don't do that. How about instead, I've got two daughters who are virgins and inexperienced. Why don't you take them and do whatever you want to them? And just don't do anything to these men. This is horrific. This is wicked. Lot is the textbook definition of a hypocrite. This is a complete act of cowardice. Lot is meant to protect his daughters, to give himself up before he would ever give them up. But he cowardly gives them up like this, just like Abraham uh, didn't trust God and gave Sarah up to the Pharaoh in chapter 12. Lot here has a complete lack of faith and trust in God, and he gives up his daughters to be abused and violated by all of these wicked men. It's absolutely horrific what Lot does. Lot is not any better than the men of Sodom. But look at what happens next. Jump back in verse 9. It says, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn or to visit, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the door, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place? For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting, to be joking. So apparently, uh, Lot has never talked to his future son-in-laws about God, never told them about God's character of righteousness and justice, never told him about the promises made to Abraham. And so when Lot comes to them for the first time and says, hey, God's about to destroy the city. We've got to get out of here. They think Lot is just the boy who cried wolf, and they laugh at him, thinking it's a joke. Like, Lot, are you serious? We've lived this way for years and nothing has happened to us. And now you say God's going to rain down asphalt from the sky and destroy us? Like, is the flying spaghetti monster going to hop on his unicorn and rain that down on us? Like, Lot, are you serious? This is a joke. You're a joke. And they refuse to come with him. Now, Lot is meant to stand as a warning to us in this text because we are not Abraham in this story. We're Lot. Lot is a believer. He's a Christian. He's a follower of God, yet he's completely compromised by the world around him. 
Second Peter 2 says that Lot was tormenting his soul over the wickedness that he saw in Sodom. Yet even though he was doing that, he bought a city, bought a house in the city. He sat at the gates. He kept folding his life deeper and deeper into the wickedness of the city. Listen, does this describe us? Would it describe you to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to keep one foot in the world of the pleasures that sin has to offer? Like, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to make sure that I experience all of the joys and pleasures that sin can bring, and I'm just not ready to give that up yet. Like, and so you're not quick to strive for holiness. You're not quick to repent of your sin and hate it and try to put it to death. Uh, you're not trying to live or show anyone anything different. You're just trying to live like everybody else and treat Jesus as fire insurance at the end of your life. Does this describe you? This is a miserable way for you to live because as long as you try to do this with one foot in and one foot out, uh, anytime you try to rush headlong into sin and just give yourself over to it fully, you're going to be too convicted and filled with shame and guilt to actually enjoy it. And then on the other hand, when you try to half-heartedly follow Jesus, you're going to be bored because you haven't actually submitted your life to him. You haven't treated him as the only one who can bring you joy and freedom and satisfaction. You've just used him as a get-out-of-jail-free card and a rubber stamp to do whatever you want. Listen, this is a miserable way to live because even though Lot is saved from the destruction of Sodom, he still bears the consequences of his sin, and the consequences he bears are horrific. I mean, we're about to see. He loses everything. His sons-in-laws, his uh, wife, his job, his city, everything. Everything he tried to find freedom and joy in, he loses it all. And he loses his dignity. We'll see next week at the end of chapter 19, Lot gets so drunk with his daughters that they're able to sleep with him on back-to-back -back nights and be impregnated by him. And he's so drunk that he doesn't even realize what's happening as it happens. He bears horrific consequences for his sins. And listen, this will be true for us as well. Like, yes, when we trust in Jesus, all of our sins at that moment are fully, freely, and forever forgiven and wiped away. Everything you've ever done, past, present, and future, will be forgiven. But that does not mean that there will not be consequences for our sin if we continue to try to live with one foot in the pleasures of the world. There will be. There will be. Lot stands here as an example to us. God is warning us that we don't have to walk down this path. God is trying to save us from the heartache and brokenness and frustration and pain that will come if we continue to try to live however we want and just pursue sin with reckless abandon and try to cheat, treat Jesus like a get-out-of-jail-free card and fire insurance. It's not the way to live. It's not what we should do. Because listen, every time God gives us a command, every time he calls us to obey, it's for our absolute joy and freedom and flourishing. Like he made the world. I'm pretty sure he understands how it works best and where to find joy and happiness. But Lot does not understand this, and he bears the consequences for his sins. But look at what happens next to him uh, in verse 15. It says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. 
Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means small or little. So as awful as Lot is, God is even more incredibly gracious, right? Like, listen, Lot is not being saved because he's better than the men of Sodom. He is not. Do I need to argue more? Do I need to do more to convince you? Like, he is not better. On top of that, he doesn't even want to be saved. Like when they tell him, hey, you got to get out of here. God's about to destroy the city. He lingers. He's like, no, I don't want to go yet. i got something to do tonight. I want to stay here. They have to grab him by the shirt collar and pull him out. And then he complains about them saving him after they save him. He's like, no, I can't go to the hills. I'll die if I do that. Why can't I just stay in this city beside Sodom? I mean, it's just a little one, isn't it? It's just a little one. Please let me do this. I mean, this is pitiful. Lot is pitiful. And yet God in his grace still saves him. Listen, I think a lot of us like to think of salvation as, you know, we kind of just exercise our free will. We saw all the options laid out, and we were just smart enough to choose God but that really doesn't seem to be the picture the Bible paints for us here, right? Like that's, that's not what happens to Lot here. Uh, we might like to think, yeah, I chose God with my free will. I was the one that made the choice. But God does not let Lot exercise his free will here, does he? Like, God did not, God overcomes uh, Lot's free will and, because he loves him too much to let him be destroyed. And listen, I think we actually get this, especially if you're a parent. Because if you're a parent, your love for your child trumps letting them exercise their free will all the time, right? Like you do this every day. Mom and dad, can we have cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? No, you can't do that. Can we go play out in the street? No, you can't do that either. Mom, dad, can I borrow the car? I want to go hang out with my friend and play at his house. No, you can't do that. You're four years old, right? Like every day, our love your love for your children trumps just letting them exercise their free will unhindered in any way that they want. And, and so Lot here, he's like, I'm not getting saved. I'm not going with you. And God's like, no, sorry. Yes, you are. And he yanks him up and he takes him out of the city and he saves him. This is good news. Romans 3 says that on our own, no one seeks after God. No one does righteous, not even one. No one looks for him. If God left us to our the own exercise of our own free will, you know what we would do? Every time we would choose to run out into the street into oncoming traffic. If we get to exercise our free will, we do, and you know what we choose every time? We choose to destroy ourselves. We choose to run into sin. We're sinners who love our sin and aren't going to be able to leave it. And so God in his grace says, nope, I'm sorry, you're mine. And he grabs you up and he takes you out and he saves you. He changes your life. He changes your heart. I mean, who is more undeserving of salvation in this story than Lot? And yet God still saves him. I mean, man, this should fill us with deep confidence in the grace of God towards us and the absolute security we have in his salvation. 
Man, clearly in this story, it shows us, if it shows us anything, that our salvation is secure, not if we drum up enough faith or if we hold on tightly to God enough. No, our salvation is secure because God has taken the initiative. God has intervened. God has pursued. God has come after us to rescue us, and he holds on to us. And so as awful and undeserving as Lot is, God in his great mercy is merciful to him and he saves him. And so he takes Lot out of the city, but then the judgment comes. Look again at the text, verse 23. It says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So when it says that Lot's wife turned and looked back and became a pillar of salt, it's not saying that that's something magical, like if you just glance backwards, uh, you get zapped on the spot and become a pillar of salt. It's saying that she was longing to go back to Sodom. She was longing. She was looking at Sodom with the eyes of her heart, if you will, longing to go back there. She's thinking, I don't want to leave. I loved my life there. I loved everything about it there. I don't want to leave. I don't want to go. She left her heart in Sodom, and she wanted to go back to there and live there, and so she experienced judgment like the rest of the city. And listen, this judgment that God pours out here is something that I think we've got to sit with. I know this is not the picture of God we like to have in 2021, but it's the biblical picture. God is a God who judges sin. The God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, will do what is just. He will do what is right. He will judge and punish sin. He's not messing around. He's not just telling a joke. He's not just playing a game. I mean, entire cities got wiped off the map here. God is a just judge who will not let the sin we commit against him and the wickedness we unleash on each other to go unpunished and unaccounted for. He is going to judge sin. He is going to judge sinners. This is the reality. This is what's coming. He's not going to sweep our sin under the rug. He's not just going to laugh it off as kids having fun. He's going to bring judgment, just judgment, on every sinner, which includes you and which includes me. And the scariest thing about all of this is that Jesus picks up on this in Luke chapter 17, and he tells us that the final judgment, the last judgment, will be just like it was in the days of Sodom, where people were buying and selling, eating and drinking, planting and building, and then fire and sulfur rained down from the sky, and God judged them all. Like, things were going on as normal in Sodom. They were just living normal lives, and then God brought judgment. Jesus is saying judgment is a certainty. It is coming. We just don't know when, and we won't get advance notice. Just like it was for Sodom, life will be going on for us like normal, and then the judgment will come. 
And so if you play around and say, oh, I can pursue sin, I can chase that, and then I can just get Jesus at the end of my life as fire insurance, you're playing a dangerous game. You may never get that chance because judgment is coming. Listen, that's the bad news, and it's real news. This is a certainty. Judgment is coming. But judgment for sinners is not the last word that this text has to speak to us. There is also hope for sinners as well. Let's go back to Abraham's prayer uh, at the end of chapter 18. Uh, Once again, Abraham appealed to God based on his justice and his righteousness, not based on his mercy. And, And once again, he was exploring God's righteous character and seeing how his righteousness played out. And as he asked these questions, what he learned is that if God could have simply found a few righteous people, their righteousness would have been enough to cover the wickedness of the many. He really does learn in a real sense that to God, righteousness is of more value and is more powerful than wickedness. For simply 10 people, God would have spared the whole city. I think we like to think the opposite, that if like 90% of the city had been righteous, then of course God would have saved it. But that's not what God says. God shows us that his righteousness plays itself out in being merciful and being quick to show mercy and so much, being so quick to show mercy that if he simply could have found a few righteous people, that righteousness would have been enough to cover the wickedness of the whole city and spare it for its sake. And Abraham got down all the way to 10 people. The righteous God said that he would have spared the whole city if he simply could have found 10 righteous people in it. But unfortunately for Sodom, there weren't even 10 righteous people to be found in the city. But it kind of makes you wonder and ask the question, why did Abraham stop at 10, right? Like, like how far does this go? W- would God have spared the city if he could have found five righteous people in it? What, what if there had only been three righteous people in it? What if there was only two righteous people in it? Or would the righteousness of one person be enough to spare the wickedness of the many and and spare the whole city for its sake? And, And Abraham never gets the answer to that question in this passage, but the good news is that as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we do. You see, there is one righteous man whose righteousness can cover the wickedness of the many, and his name is Jesus. Thousands of years after this moment, at just the right time, God, the righteous judge, he stepped into human history. He took on our humanity, and Jesus came, and he lived the one perfect life that no one before him had lived. He was always obedient and faithful to God. He was fully and completely righteous. And then after living that righteous life, he took that righteous life and laid it down on the cross so that all of our sin, all of our rebellion, and all of our wickedness could be covered by his righteousness. And he died on that cross, but he did not stay dead. Three days later, he got up from the grave to to defeat death and prove to us that our wickedness is no match for his righteousness. Listen, in Jesus, in the resurrection, we know that his righteousness is more than powerful enough to cover any amount of wickedness that we have. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what level of sexual perversion or immorality you've given yourself over to. I don't care how much brokenness you've unleashed on your life through your own sin. I don't care how wicked you are. Your wickedness is no match for the righteousness of Jesus. Look, the reality is that judgment is coming, but there's a way out. 
God, the righteous judge, took on humanity and took his own judgment on himself so that we who are sinners and deserve nothing but judgment would never have to. Romans 3 says that because Jesus has done this, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus. God can uphold his justice by punishing sin on the cross of Jesus, and yet he can still justify us. He can count us righteous because of the righteous act of Jesus. This is why the Bible says things like in him, God made him, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange that he takes our sin and wickedness and we get his righteousness. That's why it says things that like in Christ, if we've been united with him, if we've trusted in him, there's therefore now no condemnation, no wrath, no judgment hanging over us that we have left to faith. We're completely free from all of it. And so I just want to plead with you, come out from under judgment. God is offering you a way out. Jesus stands in this moment ready to save you, and he will. He will, no matter how wicked you've been. And he delights to do so. He loves to show mercy. And there's more than enough of his grace for you. I can promise you that. If God saved a lot of all people, I promise you there's room enough for you. And so come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and bring your sin to him. He will give you his righteousness. He will cover your wickedness. He will forgive all of your sins. He will unite you to himself. You'll get Jesus. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll become God's child this very morning. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus, the one righteous man who can cover all of our wickedness. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call the band back up here, and we're going to respond to Jesus and his grace. And in just a second, we're about to celebrate baptism, the fact that Jesus has brought people from death to life. And here's what I want to call you to. If this morning you've realized that you're not a follower of Jesus, that you haven't trusted in him, you haven't given your sin over to him, and you're standing under judgment and sitting under judgment, I want to call you to come out from under judgment. In just a second, we're going to have pastors and other leaders over here in the corner that would love to talk with you and pray with you and walk you through this. If Jesus is moving in your heart right now to save you, please come talk to us so we can celebrate with you and so that we can baptize you. Listen, we're ready for you. We've got everything you need. We have a change of clothes for you. We've got towels for you. We're ready for you. You may not have been ready for this morning, but we are ready if Jesus is moving to save you in this moment. And so if Jesus is working in your heart, don't quiet that. Don't shut that down. Judgment is real. It is coming, but he's offering you a way out in this very moment. And you could walk out of here having gone from death to life, adopted into the family of God. We're also going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table and celebrate that Jesus took on our humanity. He lived a righteous life, and then his body was broken. His blood was poured out on the cross so that his righteousness could cover our wickedness. We're going to celebrate that even though we are sinners who have earned nothing but judgment, he's redeemed us and he's brought us back into his family. We're going to celebrate that at the table. And we're going to give. We give sacrificially and generously as an act of worship to our great King Jesus who has been so generous towards us. And then finally, we're going to respond by singing. We are those who, just like the men and women of Sodom and Gomorrah, deserve judgment. We've earned nothing but judgment. All our lives, we've been rebellious 
and sinful towards God, and yet he has come after us. Just like he saved Lot, he has come after us, he's yanked us out, and he saved us. He's redeemed us, even though we did not deserve it, and he did not earn it. We did not earn it. And so we're going to sing the truth of our redemption. We're going to sing the good news of the gospel that though we are sinners, Christ loves us, and he died for us, and he made us his own. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond to Jesus together. Jesus, thank you that even in the midst of a hard word, your gospel still shines through. Jesus, thank you that you are the one righteous man who has come and has taken on our flesh, our humanity, to live in our place and die in our place and rise in our place so that we could live forever with you. Thank you that even though all we've ever deserved and earned for ourselves is judgment and destruction, you took that judgment on yourself so that we would not have to, so that we could be with you forever. And so this morning, Jesus, help us to respond to that. And Jesus, I pray in this moment you would call people out. You would call people and move them from death to life that you would save in this moment. Jesus, be pleased to do so. I pray that you would, in your name, amen, amen. You come to the table whenever you're ready. If Jesus is moving in your heart, come back here and please talk to us.